Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Buenos dias. And before to go to the Bible, <laughs> and it's really a pleasure to be here. Antes de ir a la Biblia, es un placer estar aquí. And I'm really happy and glad because my church from Spain coming to Sergio with me. Estoy muy alegre porque mi iglesia de España ha venido y va, van a estar aquí sirviendo conmigo. So please turn into the Bibles to Titus 2 from 1 to 10. Por favor busquen en la Biblia Titus 2 del 1 al 10. Please stand for reading of the God word. Por favor colóquese de pie para leer la palabra de Dios. Pero habla tú lo que está de acuerdo con la sana doctrina, que los ancianos sean sobrios, serios, prudentes, sanos en la fe, en el amor, en la paciencia. Las ancianas asimismo sean reverentes en su porte, no calumniadoras, no esclavas del vino, maestras del bien, que enseñen a las mujeres jóvenes a amar a sus maridos y a sus hijos, a ser prudentes, castas, cuidadosas de su casa, buenas, sujetas a sus maridos, para que la palabra de Dios no sea blasfemada. Exhorta a sí mismo a los jóvenes a que sean prudentes, presentándote tú en todo como ejemplo de buenas obras, en la enseñanza mostrando integridad, palabra sana e irreprochable, de modo que el adversario se avergüence y no tenga nada malo que decir de vosotros. Exhorta a los siervos a que se sujeten a sus amos, que agraden en todo, que no sean respondedores, respondedones. Respondones, no defraudando, sino mostrándose fieles en todo, para que en todo adornen la doctrina de Dios nuestro Salvador. This is the word of the Lord. Esta es la palabra de Dios. Good morning. All right, so once again, if you're new here, my name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. And um, I'm always excited when people from all over the world come together to praise Jesus. Um, it's such a reminder of what one day standing before the throne of Jesus will feel like, right? And brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world, from all different cultures and backgrounds come together, united in Jesus to say that he is the Christ, the son of the living God is a beautiful thing. Um, so welcome. Um, we're going to be continuing our series as we preach through the book of Titus. And so just to kind of catch you up if you haven't been here, Titus was written as a letter, or Paul wrote the book of Titus, which is a letter that was written to Titus as an opportunity for Paul to express some things that were going on in the church that Paul was concerned about. So Paul, if you remember, Paul had left Titus in Crete where they had planted some churches um, he had instructed Titus to begin planting elders and assigning elders in each one of those churches um, and, as a, and then begin to discuss some of the problems that were occurring within the body. And so the last few weeks, we've looked at some of those issues. Today, he kind of takes a little bit of a shift, and he's going to address Titus specifically in some areas that um, are dear to Paul's heart. Um, as I was processing this, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's an old saying that basically talks about, you know, my dad talked to me about it, others probably have talked to you about it, like, what do you want to leave behind? What do you want your legacy to be when you leave, right? So if I were to die tomorrow, what do I want to be remembered for? And now, most people, when you say that, they'll say something like, well, I want to be remembered as being a good person or a nice person or I loved my family, or you know, whatever it is. But I remember when um, I was 21 years old, I married Christy, so I was young, right? And there was no wisdom in me whatsoever, zero, right? I don't know, it, you know, when wisdom comes with age, okay? It, uh, not in marrying you, you know? <laughs> you guys are mean. Um, there was no, like, if wisdom comes with age, what I've learned is that it has nothing to do with the number. It has everything to do with making a lot of mistakes. 
Like typically what produces wisdom is an individual who has made mistake after mistake after mistake and hopefully learned from those mistakes and then passes on that knowledge. It comes across as wisdom and all we're doing for all of you young people, us older people, all we're doing is, is hoping that we're preventing you from making the same mistakes that we made, yeah. right? And it's not because we're smart, it's just because we failed, all right? Um, so I didn't have a lot of wisdom at this age, but I did have, I married a single mom, and so Tanner was almost two years old or around two years old, and I remember looking at Tanner and thinking, I have nothing to offer this child at 21 years old. However, over time, I began to write down some goals. Like, what is it as a father that I want to pass down to my son, right? Now, um, later, years later, comes Lacey. And at this point, I've made a lot of mistakes, right? So we're going to call it wiser. And some of the things, and I began to make the same list, what do I want to pass on to my daughter? And so it was things like, I want to, I want to demonstrate to my daughter what it looks like to love my wife well, to lead my wife well in Christ, to to be the spiritual head of our household and what does that look like, to, to encourage her to be the woman that God inspires her to be and desires her to be. If you know the women in my house, you know that they're very strong, right, and opinionated, and I like that. Um, how do I encourage that? And as this list began to grow, then Anna Maria comes into our family when she was 14, as this list begins to grow, what I've really boiled it down to is just some very simple things. If I were to die tomorrow, I would just want my family to say, he loved Jesus, and he did the best he could by his grace to glorify Jesus in every way possible. If that's what my family or my friends ultimately said about me, then I think that we, I would have succeeded. And I think ultimately what Paul is attempting to pass down to Titus is there's a lot of things. There's a lot of desires that we have to pass down. There's, there's things in us where we go, I want to be liked. I want people to talk good about me. Whatever it is, right? We need to filter through those things and say, what is it that I desire to pass down, but also what is it that I'm actually passing down? Right? Like I say, I have this desire for my family, if I were to die, to say, okay, he lived his life for Jesus. He loved Jesus. His first love was Jesus. However, is my life reflecting that, or is that just a bunch of words? Um, and what I think Paul is attempting to do here is help Titus provide some practical ideas, some practical living examples of what living for Jesus looks like. Because I don't know that we can always answer that question. There are moments in our life where a circumstance comes in or there's trouble and you say, what is the best way to gospel myself and others through this circumstance? And I don't know that we always know the perfect response. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll be like, man, I really need counsel. And I'm literally sitting there going, I have no idea what to do with this. Like, I can point you to Jesus. And I can point you to prayer. And I can point you to lean into the grace and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. But in this specific instance, I don't know what I would do, right? And because of that, oftentimes it confuses us or it causes us maybe to doubt. But there are some things as a Christ follower that we can embed in our life through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit to represent Jesus well. And so what Paul does is he kind of breaks this down. There's nobody here that's immune to what Paul is going to say here because he kind of hits everyone. And he's going to hit some different facets of life here. And so if you haven't turned in your Bibles yet to Titus chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. And he begins this way. He says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So teach what accords with sound doctrine. Church at the Well, we have been actually complained to about this, that Church at the Well seems to be, make a big deal about our doctrine, and we do. No shame in it, right? Like, we, we will tell you, we are a church that's grounded in biblical doctrine. 
Why? Because we believe that what you believe dictates how you live. Okay? So you can claim that you believe something, but really the proof is, are you actually living it out? And what we believe, accurate biblical understanding, is actually what causes us to live a life that glorifies Jesus. And so I think ultimately what Paul's doing here is he's reminding Titus, like as an elder, Titus, the one thing that you really need to focus on is to make sure that what you're teaching is sound biblical doctrine. In, some, in so many ways, that's a really easy thing to do, and in other ways, it's very difficult. You know, I've, I've told you before, doctrine's not easy. A lot of things that it says in Scripture as a you know, sin-cursed human being, I don't love. I don't love consistently being told that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner who needs a Savior. But then on the flip side, I love that, Right? It's doctrine convicts our hearts. It, it forces us to stop comparing what we say and how we behave to other people and look at Jesus instead. And that's ultimately the big issue, right? Like, when I'm not necessarily living the way that I'm supposed to, or maybe there's something in my life that's a temptation or a sin, that I know I need to repent over, and I'm getting there, right? Because I'm stubborn. There's moments where I realize that what I'm claiming to believe, I'm actually not living out, and I have to be honest with myself in that. But I justify it by looking at other people who are struggling with the same thing, and I'm like, at least I'm not that bad, right? Like, you know what, I have this little issue going on in my head or in my heart, but I'm not that person. So, Jesus, comparative to that person, like, I'm golden, right? But, but what doctrine does, solid biblical doctrine, is it prevents us from doing that. It prevents us from comparing ourselves to each other and compares us to Christ himself. And when we do that, and we're comparing ourselves to perfection, and we realize that ultimately Jesus came and lived the life that I could not live and died the death that I deserve. And then three days later rose, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. It's very humbling. And comparing myself to Christ keeps me grounded in good doctrine. Good doctrine is ultimately just grinding, you know, grounding ourselves in the gospel. Every time that we read scripture, every time that we come to Jesus, it's in the power and the strength of the gospel. When we read stories in the Old Testament, if we don't see Jesus in those stories, we've missed it. Right? It is the story of Jesus. It is the story of us as mankind falling and choosing to do it our own way, realizing that there's no way for us to reconcile ourselves back to our creator and therefore our creator sending Jesus to reconcile us to him. It's, it's beautiful. That's doctrine. That's what it's all about. Any doctrine that we have that isn't focused on the gospel itself is bad doctrine. It always has to come back to Jesus. And so when we look at what Paul is asking of this as an elder, I, when I say that this is hard, it's hard because... There's a lot of doctrines in here. There's a lot of gospel, right, that's difficult to preach in our culture. But in, in essence, that makes it a little bit easier because, you know, I told you before, one of the reasons I like to preach through books of the Bible is it prevents us from avoiding anything that humanistically I wouldn't want to say. Right? Um, I say this every week. You know where we're headed next. It's the next passages. I think that one of the biggest issues that we see across the board, right, in churches all around the world that profess Jesus is a lack of good doctrine. 
what it gets replaced with is entertainment. Conforming to the culture, we can actually use, we can actually attempt to justify bad doctrine by other doctrines, right? By saying something like, well, in order for me to reach this people group, we need to water this down a little bit so that it's more palpable to them instead of just speaking truth. As an elder, it makes it much easier to know my only job is to preach God's word, what it says in scripture, teach it to the best of my ability by his grace and not have to worry about entertaining people or tickling ears, right? So for you, how's your doctrine? Like what are the doctrines that have snuck into your way of thinking that aren't actually biblical? The funny thing is, is oftentimes what we want to be known for when we're gone, we're not going to be known for. We're going to be known for oftentimes the things that we did wrong, right? The compromises that we made. He moves on from there and he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So he's going to address older men. I don't know what older is here, right? Um, for some of you, I am an older man. I'm 47, okay? For others of you, I'm a young man, right? So I don't know, you know how to distinguish this. What I would say is, once again, there's, when we're reading passages of Scripture like this, in an attempt to apply this to myself, I'm going to say I'm both. There are moments when I am an older man, right? So for you that are younger than me, you guys, I'm supposed to take this as a responsibility to say this is what I'm supposed to pass on to you. But I'm also supposed to receive. So there's men that are older than me. And I look to them to say, can you help me by passing this on to me so that I have the ability to pass it on to others? So we're going to dive into this just a little bit. So ladies, this is, I don't know, if you're single, this is what you want to look for. Let's keep it, let's make it that simple. Um, life goals, right? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. Um, I don't really need to define those things. Self-controlled, this is one that I think we do need to define. Um, I am sure that when I was growing up, my dad was probably like, are you ever going to grow up? Like, and I don't feel so bad about it, right? Because Jesus said that to his disciples, right? He's like, how long do I have to demonstrate this to you before you're going to get it, right? Um, but I will say, like, I have found myself saying that, what my dad used to probably say to me, to others. Like, it feels like in our culture today that we have men who act like boys, right? Like, when are we going to grow up? And a big part of that is self-control. I get a lot of guys that will come to me and they're like, Ke Pastor Kevin, I have this issue, and it could be whatever it is, and I have been working on this, and I've done everything I need to do, and I I've maybe even gone to, like, talk to counselors, and I've attempted to do different things in my life to, to change this, and I've prayed, and I've done, and it's just still there. And I find myself still participating in this when I don't want to. And ultimately, what I end up saying to them is, you just have to stop. Like, you have to use the self-control that the Holy Spirit gives you to just go, I'm not doing that anymore. There comes a point where boys have to grow up into men. There comes a point where you say, you know, I remember like growing up and I thought I would have issues and I'm like, well, when I get older, that will fade away. You know what? That doesn't happen. It doesn't. Um, yes, we rely on the grace of Jesus to get us through it and there's no way to get through it without it, but there does come a point where we have to apply that grace. I'm so tired, and I'll preaching to myself here, I'm so tired 
of the lack of self-control amongst men today who just want to give excuse after excuse as to why they can't change, but they know, say they know Jesus. It says that as men, we should be self-controlled. We shouldn't be flying off the handle. We should be able to embrace our emotions. We shouldn't be slaves to things that we were slaves to as boys. Let that sit. Sound in faith. You know, I spoke about that earlier. I think, I think the, we need to redefine strength in men. Um, strength ultimately in the gospel is an individual, a man who's willing to live a life for Jesus without shame. That's strength. The next one, it says love. Um, this doesn't sound all that manly. So I, the, before I moved to Boston and planted here, I was pastoring a large church in California, and it was your typical large church. Everything was kind of segregated, so there was men's ministries and women's ministries and children's ministries and student ministries and college ministries and you could be on the campus every day all day in whatever club you wanted to be in right and I remember there was this group that came in and they said they wanted to start this new kind of men's ministry and they they wanted to call it men of valor and they had gone to their idea of what a man of valor looked like and I remember listening to their list and I had no issues with their list until they finished, and I said, well, where's love? And they're like, well, we don't wanna don't put love on the list. Like, that's, that's not manly. And I thought, well, it says in scripture that one of the things that we, it's, it's, it's right there in love. I think that, <laughs> I think that in order for a man to truly embrace self-control and faith, maybe one of the first things we have to embrace is our willingness to love and express it. To understand that Jesus loves us and to be that mirror to pass that love onto others. It is not unmanly to be loving. It's necessary to be a gospel-believing man. It's, it's required. When I grew up in like the early 80s, early 90s, there was this, there was this thing where, you know, a, the big push was, well, a real man is somebody who takes care of their family, who provides, right? And there's all kinds of things that were going on and we would find that men were basically separating themselves from their family in love, not loving on their kids, not loving on their wives, and using the excuse of providing for them as the definition of a man. And what I would say is if that's the world you grew up in, what we need to understand is it's both. Withholding love from, withholding love from anyone is not providing. In steadfastness, <laughs> so the last one I'll go over for this list. I Steadfastness, in, to me, in very simple terms, just means being committed and not wavering. Right? Um, There's a lot of people right now who are not steadfast. They're all over the place. They have a foot here and a foot there, right? I, I guess this is, this is how I'll practically state this. You as a man have to live your life in the power and the strength of the gospel without a safety net. There can't be a plan to. 
There can't be, okay, I'm going to step into this, but if it doesn't start work, if it doesn't work out for me or it feels uncomfortable, then I have this other thing over here that I can step into. And you know what I'm talking about because we do this. There's this security blanket that will be there, and it's like, well, if this isn't working, then I'll jump over there. That's not being steadfast. In fact, what you're teaching is that the gospel is only applicable when it's convenient. What this world needs is more men who profess faith in Jesus and are steadfast in it till the end. And no matter what circumstances come their way, no matter what happens, they refuse to step out of it. I know I'm hard on you guys, but this is what scripture says. I mean, there's times in my life when I look at this and I go, man, this isn't me either. Women, you're not off the hook. It says older women likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanders. <laughs> wow. Um, they say that Christ followers are the only people on the planet who eat their own. Right? Like, we'll crucify each other. But I, I will say, in my experience as a pastor, the gossip that goes on amongst women is brutal. It's brutal. Right? There's so much slander, it's ridiculous. It's just constant. And obviously, that's why it has to be placed in here. The best thing I can tell you to give you help in this area is... <laughs> don't say anything about someone else that you wouldn't say to them personally. If you don't want them to hear it, shut your mouth. Simple. Scripture says that you're not to be slanders. And I love this last one. And it says, or slaves to much wine. Don't sit around on your couch all day and drink wine. I guess that's what it's saying. But I think ultimately what it's saying is don't long for this life that's constantly just defined by luxury. Right? Use the gifts that the Lord's given you until the end. Push through. I remember one of the things that we're talking about here is passing certain things down, right? So when we look at men, when we're not following these instructions, if you have children, what are you passing on to your sons? Women, the same thing. If you find yourself in a situation where you're not someone who is reverent in behavior and not watching what you're saying about others. What are you passing on to your daughters? What are you saying is okay? And then there's some more specifics here for women. It says they are to teach what is good. And so train the young woman to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled. Isn't it interesting that self-control comes up again? I think self-control in this component or in this aspect can play itself out a little bit differently. And I'll just give another example just so we can really tackle the self-control one. So I picked on the men. Um, women. I think, I think that when it comes to self-control... It's really boiling down to making sure that your desires are grounded in the gospel and not in coveting what maybe somebody else has. There's a lot. I, and I say this because when I, when I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but while I'm there, I'm seeing a lot of women portray themselves in ways that they believe um, are going to enhance them in the culture that aren't godly. 
And I feel like that's constantly being ingrained into the lives of people, right? Um, what does beauty actually look like? Culture's constantly changing that for you. But we need to make sure that we're self-controlled in understanding what Jesus said is beautiful and not what the world says is beautiful. Be careful what you're saying and who you're saying it to. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. I hear this frequently. You, what you did made me do this. Nobody can make you do anything. Nobody can make you angry. Nobody can make you jealous. Nobody can make you yell. It's, that's, that's a condition of the heart. It's, it's being involved in circumstances and handling them poorly. We don't blame the circumstances for our behavior. We're self-controlled enough to say, I am who I am in Christ for his glory regardless of the circumstance. That's self-control. That's what we need to be passing down. Purity. We know what this is. Working at home. I'm not going to get into that one just for time's sake. Kind. <laughs> kind. Kindness. This, are, this is tough stuff to say, and I know I'm hesitating at times, but here's the thing. I, ladies, especially if you're single and you're desiring to be married someday, kindness is more attractive than anything else. A woman who is kind is a very attractive woman. There's something about kindness. I, I think it's because I don't know if it's just because I know men and women are created differently. There's different roles that we play. We know that. There's different um, ways that we, um, in a complementary way, uh, together, when men are behaving the way they're supposed to, women are behaving the way they're supposed to, Jesus is glorified greatest. Um, there's something about kindness in a woman that is... Um, attractive, the flip side of that is accurate as well. Um, there's something that is very unappealing about a woman who has an inability to be kind. And I don't, I, I can't define that. I just know in scripture it says, obviously this is going to be a challenge because it's addressed. You need to be kind. And, and I think one of the biggest challenges is that you're kind with each other. Submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. All of this, like, it says that the word of God may not be reviled. And this is a simple statement, and all it means is this. When we're not behaving this way and claiming Jesus, we're misrepresenting Jesus. It's that simple. What we're passing on is not gospel, it's worldly. These are things to strive for. These are things that we want to look at and pass down. And when we don't do that, there's ramifications for it. Verse 6, likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Isn't that fascinating that everyone needs self-control? Is that ultimately maybe what the, the greatest issue is? When's the last time that you prayed for self-control? Like specifically. I wonder how many times I would actually avoid the temptation if I just embraced the gift of the Holy Spirit to be self-controlled in the moment. I got, that's something that we need to pray for. Every, every category here, whoever Paul is addressing, 
both sexes, old and young, self-control is listed as the consistent. A lack of self-control produces anything but the gospel. Anything but gospel living. He turns it back on to Titus in verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. A model of good works. Um, Why do we do good works? Do we do good works to earn the favor of God? No. We know that salvation is through faith and faith alone in Jesus and what what he's done and what he continues to do. We know that. But scripture does talk about good works. Good works do impact others. It's our way of of showing what's going on internally. I care about you, not because I'm a great person, but because Jesus cares about me. So I reflect that back out. I forgive you, not because I'm a forgiving person, but because Jesus forgave me. (laughs) I'm kind to you, not because I'm a kind person, but because Jesus is kind to me. That's, that's ultimately, the, the, those are the good works. It's not works that we even produce. Scripture tells us that our good works are like filthy rags, right? And I won't get into the details of that. It's nasty. We, I've, I, I've said this to us before I, because I constantly have to remind myself of this. Why are we so arrogant to think that we can impress a God that created all things? Why do we get to a place where we go, oh, I can do something so good that God himself is going to be like, whoa, that was amazing, right? I mean, there's moments, and I probably had them this week where I sat back and I was like, God, you're so lucky to have me. Like, do you see all the stuff I did for you this week? And he's like, what are you talking about? There is no good in you. The only good in you is Jesus. And if he produces good works, it doesn't come from you. It comes from him. Right? What do we really have to brag on? Jesus himself. You know, let's redefine what good works are. Good works are reflecting Jesus to others. That's a good work, okay? It's not about how busy we are. It's not about how much we produce. It's about how well we're reflecting Christ to other people. Are we displaying, you know, well, that person doesn't deserve to be loved. Well, neither did you. That person doesn't be, you know, we are people of reconciliation. We do everything that we can to reconcile. Why? Because Jesus reconciled us. Well, that person doesn't deserve it. Well, neither did you. We don't deserve it. And then when we blow it, do you know what a good work is? Displaying what repentance looks like in a holy way. One of the things I got convicted of in reading this list is I realized that as a young man, I I neglected to show my family routinely what repentance looks like. Right? As Christ follows, our lives, one of the things our lives need to be defined by is consistent repentance because I'm consistently blowing it. But how does my family know how to repent if it's not displayed to them? Right? What does holy repentance look like? We pass that on. That's a good work. We need to, <laughs> we need to display these works so that Jesus is glorified. It says, and in your teaching, show integrity. Practice what you say. The only person who has ever been able to teach perfectly and practice every single thing that they taught was Jesus, right? So when I say practice what you say, it's almost like you're being set up because we're saying, hey, teach proper doctrine, but as a dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace, we know that we're going to consistently fail. So what do we do with that? 
We own it. When I fail, I admit it. I say this is an area that I'm struggling in. I say, I, I'm not gospeling myself well here. I need somebody else to gospel me. This is the whole purpose of the church. This is why it's, we're not to live in isolation because we need each other. I need that encouragement to say, hey, this is an area I'm struggling in and I know what scripture says, but right now it's hard. I'm not leaning into the grace of Jesus clearly, but help me, show me, teach me, walk with me. Call me out to repent when I need to. In doing so, your teaching stays at a place of integrity. The only way that your teaching isn't going to be a place of integrity, one, is if you claim perfection, or two, never express your failures or repenting in those. Part of gospel integrity is understanding that we are dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace. That we do live in sin-cursed bodies in a sin-cursed world. And that it's hard. But Jesus is better. (laughs) And he gives us the strength to not be slaves to that sin. Model of good works in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that it cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I always try to be as real as I possibly can. This is another one that's a difficult saying. Um, There's plenty of evil that's said about me. Heck, you may have said something the other day. I've heard it. Right? Um, The church gets attacked. I've heard it. My integrity will get intact. I've heard it. You've been attacked. You've heard it. Sometimes the attacks have some truth to them. Right? And so we, we attempt to own the truth, but sometimes, sometimes they don't. Sometimes we're attacked and called evil by evil when we're not. And I think part of the integrity is not owning something false. You know, I, I think one of the things that the church currently lacks is boldness. It's boldness sometimes to say, no, I'm not perfect, but that's not true. I also think we lack boldness in defending each other. We have all experienced those moments when we're attacked by someone and you turn around and there's nobody there defending you. When others know that it's not true, it's hard. We need to be bold enough and courageous enough that we own our failures, but we also own when we don't fail. We, we stand up for one another. I have found that even, it's sad. It's sad, you know, this age of rock star pastors where we're seeing a lot of issues and a lot of people falling. Some of those things that are occurring are horrific and people need to be removed. But I'm also horrified by the fact that in most cases, other Christ followers completely abandon the individual. As if, you know, they become almost untouchable. We need to defend the gospel and we need to defend the gospel in each other. Get to this last section, verse 9, and it talks about this idea of bond servants. I defined a bond servant a couple weeks ago for you. Um, it's an individual who is a slave by choice. Paul calls himself a bond servant of Christ. 
if you are a Christ follower, one of your designations is as a bond servant of Jesus. We, we bind ourselves to Jesus willingly because of who he is and what he's done. Right? We, we, we give up the rights to our life because we've been purchased by his sacrifice. We are no longer our own, we belong to him. That, that's a profound understanding of the gospel and it's something that we're constantly struggling with, right? Because ultimately, all of these things that we've talked about, when we fail in them, it's because we say, no, I'm, I belong to me, not to you. Or I think I know better than you do, right? So then I'm not self-controlled or I'm not kind or I don't repent or I don't display the love of Jesus to an individual or I declare that they don't deserve it even though I know I don't either. As a Christ follower, you are bound to Jesus. So we understand the concept of bond servants. Back in this day, I mean, I don't, I think there's still bond servants. We don't call it that. If you have ever purchased a house, you're a bond servant, right? If you own a credit card and it has any balance on it whatsoever, you're a bond servant. If you go to college today, you will be a bond servant the rest of your life, right? It's, it's giving a piece of yourself and your time, your talents, your energy to make good of something that you owe. That's being a bondservant. So we get it. Back in this day, it looked a little bit different. It, went, it was, I, maybe I borrowed some money from you and I can't possibly pay this off, so I will work it off. I will be in servitude to you. So we understand it, even though it, its context is a little bit different. It says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. The word submissive here is the same word that is used for wives to be submissive to their husbands. It's a voluntary submission. And if you really understand the passage, what you're going to realize is what you're submitting to voluntarily isn't even the person, it's Jesus himself. Right? Jesus says, this is what I'm to do, so I put myself in a place of submission to honor him and out of love for him. I do this, right? So everybody, at some point, if you know Jesus, you are required to be submissive to somebody. Every one of us is submissive to Jesus, or to be submissive to our own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, not showing all good faith, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, I want to make this as applicable as I possibly can for us. And whatever it is that we're to submit to, okay? So we know Scripture tells us that God puts authority figures over us. And we are to submit to those authority figures, whatever that looks like. We read a passage where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as you, you're gonna submit to Jesus. We have submission if you are um, an employer, you submit to your boss, right? And we're told that children are to submit to their parents. And we have this, definition here of what true submission looks like and what it doesn't look like. And to make this as simple as I possibly can, and, and as practical as I can, how well we submit does show how well we're willing to submit to Christ. See, in the work environment, I believe that Christ followers should be the best workers. Why? Because it's not just submitting to our employer, we're submitting to Jesus. 
Jesus, I will do all for the glory of you. So I'm not just sitting on this computer making money for someone. You committed to do that. You took the job. But you're doing the gifts. You're employing the gifts that you've been given by Jesus to represent him well in the workplace that you've chosen. And when we don't do some of these things, when we're argumentative, when we're (laughs) pilfering, hopefully you're not stealing, but when you're stealing, you know, and you're like, well, that's an obvious one. I don't know. I have found myself where I've worked for people, and what I realized and was convicted of is I stole time. They're paying me for a job, and I took a longer break than I was supposed to. It's stealing money. I ran an errand on their time instead of mine. So it's, it is more complex than we want it to be. But we're to be the most loyal. This doesn't mean we're pushovers. It doesn't mean that we don't have rights. But what it does mean is in the workplace, what should happen is employers should be like, you know what I need? I need some more Christians. Like, I may not even believe what they say, and I don't understand them fully, but man, they work hard. They're trustworthy. They're kind. They're loyal. These are the hardest workers we've got. They don't complain. They're not argumentative. They respect me. Is that what our employers say about us? Is that what anybody says about us when we find ourselves in a position of submission? I think to represent the gospel well, we have to understand that we first serve Jesus. In fact, you know, I've used examples like this before. So I was a soccer player, I played in college, and as a young man playing soccer, what I had realized was I loved running out onto the field and listening to the crowd. That was cool. And when they shouted my name, I really enjoyed that. And one day I remember running out onto the field and listening to what was going on and being convicted to say, I don't know what I'm so proud of because the only reason that I have any ability whatsoever to play in any level whatsoever is because the Lord created me with some gifts. So I remember there was a switch in me at some point where I began to run out into the field and say, this is gonna be an audience of one. Jesus, I don't care what's going on in the crowd. To my coach's dismay, I didn't even care if we won or lost anymore. I just wanted to do the best that I possibly could to please my Savior. Lord, you created me, you've given me gifts and talents, I wanna do it. And do you know what happened? I played better. I found that my motivation was higher. Running out for me was not great motivation. In fact, it was very fleeting. Running out for Jesus, that's a calling. It changes everything. The other thing I learned is that if I take all of the credit and that becomes very important to me and it creates this high in me, When I fail, I'm also gonna own all of those things and I'm constantly living in this state where I'm either high, high or low, low. I'm either the greatest player in the world or the worst, right? But playing for Jesus when I had a bad day, it was like, sorry, Lord, you know, I did the best that I could and I didn't, it wasn't my best, but your mercies are new every day. You know, We're not supposed to live our lives with this constant like high highs and low lows. The the Christ follower, to represent Jesus well, we are emotional people, that is important. But our faith is steady. That steadfastness is there. What circumstances aren't dictating how we're responding to situations. If you're one of these individuals who's 
constantly like way high or way low, then I would say there might need to be some assessment on who you're actually living for. Passages like this are weird. Um, they fly in the face of culture. They, they often create a lot of conviction internally. You know, when I compare myself to what it says, say, older men are supposed to be, I'm often going, wow, I'm falling short. Um, and that's okay. What I really want you to take away with this is a couple of things. One, if you're here today and you listen to this and you're like, yes, this is what the world needs. Yes, this is what I've been looking for. Yes, this is the type of lifestyle that I want to live. I need you to understand that you can't do it without Christ. Like this isn't, this isn't Paul writing to his buddy with self-help. This is Paul writing to his buddy, reminding him to declare his dependency upon Christ so that these types of things can be evident in his life. If you think that you can produce these things, I'm going to call you out because you already know you can't. You haven't. You've tried everything and it hasn't worked. You've attempted, it didn't, didn't fly. The only way to be able to live this way is by giving our lives to Christ and allowing him to live in us. And all that takes is faith. It's, it, this great exchange occurs. It's, it's taking all of the things that we've placed our trust in, in ourselves, and removing those and saying, I'm going to put my faith and trust in what, who Jesus is and what he's done. No longer will I trust myself to be reconciled to the Father and works that I can't possibly produce. I'm going to bank and put all of my faith on the fact that Jesus did live the life that I was supposed to live and died the death that I deserve. And he offers that to me in exchange for my mess. That's where it starts. If that's you, and I don't know, there's something happening here, you're like, I wanna know more, I have questions, or I just, what do I do? What does this look like? I'm just gonna encourage you. you. You can come talk to me afterwards, but that's very unnecessary. You can turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we chat? Go have coffee together. I love you enough to tell you without Christ, you can't produce anything. For the church, this list is difficult. I do feel like we should be convicted at times. There's moments when we're going through passages like this and we're like, wow, um, that's not me. I claim to know Jesus, but I can tell you right now I am not self-controlled. And I can give you 18 examples from yesterday. So what do we do? Well, I think the gospel gives us freedom to first declare that we know that we're not self-controlled. You cannot repent from a sin that you don't agree that you're committing. We have to eliminate the excuses first. We have to stop blaming circumstances and other people and just go, I'm a dirty, rotten, messed up sinner who is not self-controlled. And once we own it and identify it and define it, then it frees us for true repentance. And all repentance is, is turning 180, right? It's acknowledging it, it's laying it upon Jesus, it's turning and walking the other way. And what are we walk to? Jesus himself. But we gotta own it. We own it so that we can repent and our lives reflect more Jesus. And the last thing I want this church to understand is that there is stuff at stake here. If you call yourself a Christ follower, 
you represent Jesus, whether you represent him well or not, that's a different story. But you represent him. You represent him at work. You represent him in your family. You represent him in your relationships. You represent him when you're just walking down the street. You represent him in what you put in your body. You represent what you do when nobody else is looking. You are a representation of Christ to not only him, but to the world around you. To other believers who need to be discipled. To unbelievers who need the love of Jesus displayed in their life. Truth and love. So the question is, how are you representing? There's The cool thing about this passage, there's some practical things to really allow us to process. There's nothing abstract here. It's not, oh, just go and do better. There's some specifics here. So what do you need to work on? What do you need to repent over? If you were to die today, what would you be known for? What would your friends say? What would your kids say? If it's not, if it's not 100%, the first thing that came out of their mouth was, man, they weren't perfect, but they loved Jesus, then I would say we're failing. And I think that that should be the answer regardless of who we're around and who is answering that question. Even at your workplace, if you go, would people say, they were a Christian, they loved Jesus? There's a lot at stake. We will be held accountable for how we represent him. Now let me flip this real quick. I do believe that some negative motivation is good, but I want you to see the positive motivation. You get to represent Jesus. You get to represent Jesus to your family. You get to represent Jesus to a lost world. You get to represent Jesus to your church. You get to represent Jesus to your community. You get to submit. You get to understand and teach and practice good doctrine. And I think the greatest joy we find in that is do you realize, like people will say to me all the time, like I just can't sense God's will. And I'm like, he's not hiding it. God doesn't hide his will. He doesn't. He tells us right here. There's joy in that. You don't have to figure it out. One of the things I love about preaching is I don't have to make up material. He's already done it. There's joy in that. So live it out in joy. But what needs to change? Maybe one of the things that needs to change is maybe you're attempting to live all of this out, but there's no joy in it whatsoever, so there's no, no contagiousness in you at all. Instead of saying you get to, you, you view it as I have to. And that's just as sinful. So I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in here. I don't know what needs to happen. This is an odd sermon. I've literally just been talking to myself, and you guys have just been on the, on, on the ride. Um, but what needs to change? Um, the two ladies are going to come up. We're going to sing another song, and... Um, I'm going to give you just an opportunity to pray and give you an opportunity to do whatever it is you need to do. If you need to repent and you need to do it publicly, just come kneel, pray to the Lord. If you need to reconcile with someone that's in this room, I would encourage you to do it. And if you need to find joy, then I'd encourage you to sing with every ounce of your being. But don't leave here the same. We're never supposed to be the same once we come in contact with God's word. It always changes us. We're supposed to. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I... I don't know what you're doing in the room. I don't know 
what needs to happen or what needs to change. I do know that there's no way every individual in this room has professed Jesus as Savior and Lord. So Lord, right now, I just specifically pray that whoever that is that needs to give their lives to Jesus, that you would regenerate their heart, that you'd remove that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them boldness and courage to accept that they're a dirty, rotten sinner who deserves hell. But Lord, that, that you love them, that you died for them, that you rose for them. Lord, I ask that nobody would leave this room without knowing Christ. And Lord, for your church, forgive us. Forgive us for not living out your doctrine. Forgive us for making it a burden when it should be grounded in joy. Forgive us for not repenting when we need to. Forgive us for making excuses. And Lord, whatever needs to happen in here, may the gospel, may Jesus be the most important thing in every one of our lives. May that define us above all else. And Lord, we desire that for your glory and your glory alone. So whatever's in us that needs to be removed, Father, we pray that you would remove it. Whatever needs to change, Lord, we pray for the grace by the power of your Holy Spirit to change it. And Lord, we're so grateful for that privilege of knowing you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.